Okay, I think we'll get started. Um, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Middle East Center. Um, thank you for braving the rain, or although I think it stopped actually. <laughs> but um, welcome and uh, welcome to tonight's event uh, on conflict-related sexual violence in Iraq responses and reparations. Uh, my name is Jess Watkins. I'm a research officer at the Middle East Center, um, and I uh, our speakers tonight are Gulay Bor and Dr. Ali Akram Al Bayati. Um, so Goulet is um, a recipient of uh, the small grants um, on the Conflict Research Programme, which is a three-year uh, project which is sponsored by DFID, looking at drivers of conflict and counters to conflict in uh, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, South Sudan, and the DRC. Um, so tonight uh, marks the launch of Goulet's paper. Um, most of you are no doubt uh, familiar uh, with the some of the atrocities that were committed by ISIL against the Yazidi community in Iraq. But the paper that uh, Goulet is launching tonight sheds light on um, a much less publicized case study of uh, the Shia Turkmen in Tel Afar in Nineveh province. So um, uh, to introduce our speakers, we have um, Goulet and Dr. Al-Bayati um, Goulet is an international lawyer, a researcher, and a consultant with a focus on transitional justice, human rights, and gender in Iraq and Turkey. Uh, she previously managed the Yazidi Genocide Documentation Project of Yazda in Bahuk, Kurdistan region of Iraq, as a Harvard Law School Sutter Human Rights Fellow. And she also authored Yazda's second mass grave report entitled Working Against the Clock, Documenting Mass Graves of Yazidis Killed by the Islamic State. Um, we also have the pleasure to welcome Dr. Ali Akram al-Bayati, who's a neurologist and the founder and president of the Turkmen Rescue Foundation. Uh, Turkmen Res Rescue Foundation is an NGO de dedicated to defending human rights of minorities in Iraq, and particularly the Turkmen. Uh, he's also a member of the Iraqi High Commission for Human Rights, uh, which is Iraq's national human rights institution. Um, so welcome very much to our, our speakers. Um, just a few housekeeping rules. Um, so our speakers are going to talk for 15 or maybe 20 minutes each. Um, so, but that should still leave us uh, plenty of time for Q&A. Um, can I remind you all to silence your phones if you haven't already? Um, and just to let you know that tonight's proceedings will be recorded. Um, so if you would like to tweet about tonight's event, you're very welcome. And the hashtag is uh, hashtag LSE uh, Iraq. So without any further ado, I'd like to, I think Ms. Uh, Dr. Bayati is going to start off. Okay. Uh, good evening, all. Uh, thank you very much for LSE and Middle East Center for this invitation and uh, helping us to attend here because uh, this is Today we are we are talking about uh, a hard job started at June 2014. 20, uh, it was uh, very hard for us when we started to document through uh, TRF about what happened after ISIS invasion in Iraq. And at that time uh, we were dealing uh, with a lot of cases including displacement, including misty people. The case of women and ladies was I think the most sensitive. Uh, and unfortunately, it was totally absent and missed uh, both in, in, at, the, at the national level and international level. And at that time, when we started to, to work with, with, uh, together with our staff, who are mostly volunteers uh, from Turkmen community, 
no one actually w- w- was believing us that there is uh, kidnapped Turkmen uh, women and ladies, and some of them even threatened at that time because we are talking about a very sensitive issue because of um, conservative nature of our committee. Uh, we started this long journey to uh, document that and lobbying and advocacy to reached. We, we reached here. Uh, today I will talk uh, in a simplified way. Uh, uh, to give a small introduction about Turkmen. Uh, Turkmen is the third la- largest ethnic group in, in Iraq after Arabs and Kurds, according to the Iraqi constitution 2005. Uh, the population of Turkmen um, around two and a half to three millions, uh, and according to the old census data, uh, it's about seven to ten percent of Iraqi population, which is now 40 million. Um, the geography we are living in a strip line starting from northwest of Iraq, especially in Tilafar to the southwest of Iraq in Al Quti province. So, this site is a line of binding four countries, including Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. Uh, the area is very rich in oil, especially Kirkuk, uh, and through Tilafar, Jihan pipe of oil is passing. Uh, the suffering of Tur- Turkmen actually started, if we are talking about the new era in Iraq and when, when there is democracy, by Article 140. In this article, uh, there was actually a dispute between this, uh, the, the central government and KRG, which is Kurdistan Regional Government. Uh, this article made actually a gap on, on many levels, including security, um, uh, uh, pro, pro, uh, providing services and even uh, it was a, a real attractive weak target for, for terrorist groups including uh, Al-Qaeda then Daesh so over 16 years we, we lost of about 10,000 civilians have been killed especially in Telafar and Tusfurmatu city uh, most of them have been killed and by bombs, explosion, explosion and assassination and some of them uh, kidnapped uh, also, most of the business men and academics actually left uh, the region because of this risk. Uh, at June uh, 2014, there was displacement of more than uh, 100,000 families, actually within a few hours. Uh, so at that time, uh, it was very logic that we will lose more than 1,000 civilians because it is very difficult for uh, a city uh, in which there is uh, more than 300,000 to give them a time, uh, give them a time, a few hours to leave the city. Uh, we realized that there is some people missed inside, and and we had a, an evidence for that. But at that time, no one was believing, uh, because Turkmen community is a conservative, and there was some um, isolation from the other communities, especially in Baghdad. And the government at that time was busy actually with the war out of. Uh, fight in, in different parts of, of Iraq. Uh, so, um, regarding Turkmen, women and ladies, uh, dealing of, of terrorist groups was different when we are comparing it with the Yazidi case. And this and, and this evidence, actually, uh, we got it through uh, Yazidi witnesses. They mentioned for many times, and especially uh, their parlamentarian, uh, Vianda Khid, she mentioned once in media that 
they were uh, kidnapping, raping Yazidi women and selling it, but regarding Turkmen, it was not possible. It was not possible for uh, Turkmen women to be sold for, I think, ideological uh, reasons. Uh, and even some of them who have been released, uh, they uh, behaved and declared themselves as Yazidi. They uh, actually um, heard that there are Turkmen and Muslim, and they behaved as Yazidi, and for this reason, some of them actually have been released with Yazidi people. At that time, I think the number is mo not more than five, and one of them suicided uh, at that time. Uh, there was a need for uh, an information and documentation. This report uh, actually um, uh, issued at, uh, I think, February uh, 2016. Uh, this woman, uh, she was a parliamentarian. She's from Telafar. Her name Iman, I think. Iman Muhammad or Ahmed, I'm not sure. Uh, she was uh, the only activist in Telafar. She was parliamentarian and she was leading an NGO at that time. She have been, uh, she has been kidnapped and raped and killed with her husband uh, at that time. Um, the good and hopeful thing that uh, helped us at uh, March 17, 2016, USA Department of State mentioned in its report about genocide, uh, we know that Daesh mass massacred hundreds of Shia Turkmen and Shabaks. Shabaks also another minority in Iraq. Uh, they have also, according to their evidence, that they have tens of women and ladies also kidnapped in Telafar and Mosul. The second point mentioned in this uh, statement uh, besieged and starved the Turkmen town of Amirli. Amirli was a village also about 180 kilometers north of Baghdad. Uh, it had uh, been uh, besieged by ISIS for 83 days. Uh, for one month, they, they were uh, fighting without any help from anyone. Neither the government or the international community were, was able to reach them. Uh, they are around uh, 20,000 Turkmen uh, people, uh, but they are farmers and they have a lot of experience in, in fighting. So they, they were fighting for one month without any help. At that time, even the women and kids were holding weapons, of course. But after 83 days with the intervention of international community and Iraqi forces, actually, uh, it is released. Uh, so uh, the, the third point also mentioned in the statement, kidnapped hundreds of Shia Turkmen, women raping many in front of their own families. Uh, I think that statement was very important for us because after that we started to talk with the special representative about sexual violence uh, in UN, uh, Madame Zainab Bangura. I had a visit to her in New York and uh, she, was, uh, she, she was aware about our reports and she promised. And after that, uh, a lot of institutions try, started to talk with the Iraqi, Iraqi government about that. Regarding efforts uh, have been done to release Turkmen women and children like what have been done for, for Yazidi women actually from governmental side it was absent a systemic, systemic way but there was some coordination between uh, their families, some activists, some uh, people from national security ministry and actually they uh, succeeded to release uh, maybe to 20 children or kids at that time. Uh, there was a help from from uh, Turkmen on the other side because half of Turkmen 
actually were living inside the area actually captured by ISIS. So the, the, there was some cooperation between them and they helped us to release some of the uh, kids, uh, of course, by money, not free. Uh, regarding international effort in this topic, it was actually absent, and still. Um, after defeat of ISIS uh, and after <coughs> the operation started in Nineveh, uh, there is an evidence about 20, 25 to 50 women have been released. Actually, we succeeded to reach, uh, with Gile, of course, to 20 of them. We have evidence that there is more. But of, of course, because of social stigma, it is not possible to reach to them. We have also more than 25 children, Turkmen children, these now, um, but they are suffering from hostile behavior. Um, uh, there is still um, social stigma, uh, which made it difficult to, to reach to them. Um, and it was difficult for any institution, although there was uh, some uh, 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 some readiness for, for some of the institution to give support there medically and psychologically, but because of social stigma, it was not possible. Uh, we think that the main struggles now, uh, first, social stigma still, although it is reduced now, for many reasons, uh, there was some local efforts by TRF, other NGOs with support of IOM, some small grants have been given to that uh, point. There was also some efforts by Turkmen politicians, uh, some other organization. They helped the survivors to attend some public. One of the uh, press conference happened in, in Kirkuk. It was through one of the Turkmen politicians. It was some sort of psychological support for them to uh, get rid of social stigma. Um, the another um, struggle most of those survivors today are without families of course either they lost all the family or they have one or two so they are living with together with relatives neighbors or so um, the third most important uh, point uh, we have legislative gaps because this issue is a new issue in iraq and so we don't have a legislation to deal with them and with the absence of legislation, of course, it is impossible for an institution, government institution, to help them. We have what we call it law uh, number 20 for 2009, which is mainly dealing with uh, um, victims of terrorism, including missed, injured, and killed people. But there is nothing about uh, victims of uh, sexual violence, of course. Um, the hope also started when there was a um, draft came uh, from uh, office of Iraqi president at uh, April 2019. But the problem in this uh, draft that uh, it mentioned the title of this 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 draft only uh, about Yazidi survivors. Uh, most of the points or articles of this draft was talking about Yazidi case. Uh, there was also nothing about misty people who still not turn it back, nothing about their families and also nothing mentioned about uh, accountability because we think that it is an uh, uh, international crime so we must deal with that. Uh, at that time there was interference through uh, us because I am a member of Human Rights Commission so we have, uh, according to our mandate, to interfere and give a feedback for any 
legislation or draft. We worked together and we sent a letter to the ministerial <coughs> Iraqi Ministerial Council. Unfortunately, we succeeded to amend the uh, draft. Uh, we uh, made the title general, all survivors. Uh, they included Yazidi, Turkmen, and Christian. Uh, although we think that Shebek also, because it will give some uh, non-physical support for them. Um, there was also another point about uh, their children, uh, the kids who came through uh, raping or marriage with ISIS members. It's a problem also, according to Iraqi legislation. So according to this draft, they referred this uh, decision through the main religious or social leader in this community. Because if we are talking about Yazidi case and Turkmen case, the um, uh, the leader is different, and, and even the decision will be different. So each one community, each single community has different decision. So it it, it is general. Uh, it is in general uh, a decision to allow for them to do what they want, what is uh, better for them. They can do it regarding the, the, the dealing with, with the kids who came through ISIS. Um, there was also missed uh, uh, points about their families and even nothing uh, still mentioned about accountability. Uh, we're still waiting approval through, through the parliament because the last step will be approval through the parliament. And we are working on, on this level, of course. Uh, another work we did, uh, there was an advocacy um, because um, as a Turkman, we are divided to Shia and Sunni. And uh, as a Shia, in general, all Shia in Iraq uh, returning as a religious leader to, to Marja'iya, who are the religious leader in Najaf. So we thought that there is a necessity for a fatwa to come from them because it will help first to release or relieve social stigma from the community. It will support the people in general or uh, advise the people to support such victims or their families. And I think it will also um, uh, guide the institution in general to be aware about the, the, the suffering of such people. So fortunately, at uh, September 22, there was a fatwa from the uh, one of the marja, a religious leader in Najaf, Muhammad Said Hakim. Uh, the fatwa was in a response to a question uh, sent or have been asked by some of the um, uh, Shia religious students in this school, which, which we call it Hausa. Um, the question asked about the responsibility of the community in regard to such uh, victims. The uh, fatwa considered uh, that the crimes as the great, greatest crimes. Uh, he called for sympathy with the victims and their families and the uh, provision of care and reparation, uh, referring to that as one of the main social responsibility. And we think that it will have a real positive imp impact on both social and governmental level. Uh, I think in the future we need um, amending this draft to have universal and practical legislation. Uh, we need also some survivor-centered steps, including specialized medical uh, center in Iraq to treat survivors of conflict-related social violence. Um, because if we are talking in general, we have now more than 2,000 Yazidi uh, survivors also. And we think, 
as Human Rights Commission that there is also maybe hundreds of victims from other community because the topic is very sensitive, so no one is talking about that. But I have evidence that there is another community in Iraq also have survivors uh, for same reasons. Um, we need also empowering them by jobs, education, skill, skills, uh, and financial support, special care and attention for children and availability to participate in accountability process. Uh, because I think participation of victim and, and accountability it is one of the international standards of transitional justice. Uh, also, we need special measures to com combat domestic violence, including legislation, uh, changing curriculum, media, and accountability. Because we think that uh, the basic uh, uh, keystone in, in the uh, domestic violence, and if you want to uh, get rid of this, this violence, we must uh, try to treat that uh, through legislation and other points. And thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay. Anyone to go? Hi, um, and thank you so much for having me and Dr. Alvayati today. Um, as just mentioned, um, uh, I'm, I'm a researcher and lawyer with a focus on transitional justice, reparations, and gender. Uh, and I just want to talk a little bit about um, this, this research and, uh, and the paper. Uh, and starting with the methodology, not much has been published on the situation of Talafar post-liberation, in particular on the services that are available to survivors, uh, which is why I engaged in fieldwork in uh, November 2018, and it was thanks to uh, TRF and uh, Dr. Albayati. Uh, I held semi-structured uh, semi interviews and a focus group discussion with three survivors of sexual violence and two survivors of captivity, uh, as well as interviews with uh, key actors in Talafar from health, security, uh, legal, and humanitarian fields. Uh, the data is limited, and this is due to several reasons. Uh, first off, uh, like Dr. Albayati mentioned, more survivors were accessible, although some of them were minors and were excluded due to ethical reasons. Uh, second is some survivors mentioned uh, fear of repercussions by uh, families or the community and were also excluded in line with the principle of do no harm. Uh, thirdly, the security situation was a bit tricky and made access more difficult and to organize a longer stay. Uh, so this is an initial research, uh, and it's, it, should be, um, uh, it should be supplemented by additional findings. Uh, so this is where Talafar is uh, in Nineveh. And just to give a brief overview of um, the Daesh attacks and uh, liberation operations uh, in Nineveh, um, Daesh started off by uh, taking Mosul, which is the one on the right here. Uh, and Mosul was taken over on June 10, 2014, and um, shortly thereafter, it was clear that it was moving towards Talafar. And a number of the Shia Turkmen started moving towards Sinjar, some of them on foot. Um, the, the city fell, Talafar fell on June 16, 2014. Um, a number of the Shia Turkmen had already moved to Sinjar, but those who remained were either killed or, or taken with their fates and whereabouts still unknown. Um, after they moved to Sinjar, as you know, when, when the Yazidi genocide started on August 3rd, 2014, the Shia Turkmen were targeted alongside the Yazidi then, and a number was, were killed and, and kidnapped uh, during that time as well. 
Uh, we don't know exactly all of the violations and the numbers uh, because there hasn't been systematic documentation on the Shia genocide. Uh, however, we have um, there are reports on um, disappearances, abductions, killings, conflict-related sexual violence, um, forced displacement, and destruction of religious sites. Uh, the estimates that we have right now, based on documentation by local activists, is that around 1,300 Telefaris are missing and 450 of them are women and girls. When we examine the attacks of Daesh in Talafar and elsewhere in Iraq and other countries against the Shia, uh, it's, it appears that there's a strong case that the attacks against Shia by Daesh constitute genocide under the Genocide Convention. However, um, as Dr. Albayati mentioned, the situation of women and girls were a bit different. The main act in the genocide of the Shia was killing rather than sexual violence, while, um, as we all know, the sexual violence was used quite widespread in the Yazidi genocide. This could be uh, due to Daesh's categorization of the Shia as both apostate and polytheist, and this uh, schism in the so-called religious justification uh, as to whether apostate women can be uh, enslaved or not. And as we, as Dr. Albayati mentioned, we know from Yazidi women's testimonies that uh, Shia women were often killed, uh, although there are also reports that some of them were killed um, following being subjected to CRSV. Uh, over 300,000 people are now back in Talafar, and um, half of them are back in Talafar city. Uh, the biggest concerns of those who return are the need for psychosocial support, uh, employment, housing, uh, houses, public services, and the intercommunity tensions. Uh, of the 450 missing women and girls that are estimated uh, by local activists, only 22 of them are back. Uh, and they were rescued from Mosul and Talafar. Uh, it's unfortunately possible that a number of those who are still missing have been killed, considering the frequency of killings in Daesh attacks against the Shia. Uh, however, there are also reports of women and girls who are still under captivity. Uh, but as Dr. Albayati mentioned, there are no official um, state-organized rescue efforts. They're all individual. Um, and there has been some reports of um, rescuing girls from uh, women and girls from neighboring countries, such as Turkey. <coughs> Um, again, as Dr. Albayati mentioned, there has been high levels of uh, community-level stigma, which is also reportedly impacting returns, as some of the survivors were told not to return by their families. Uh, however, um, at, at the same time, this uh, the stigma is also impacting uh, survivors' access to services, uh, as well as their, their it's restricting their mobility and re-traumatizing them. Uh, the locals, as Dr. Albayati mentioned, were um, they all had the opinion that the only way to change this was through the uh, involvement of the religious leaders. So we're hoping that this fatwa that Dr. Albayati just mentioned, which just came out two weeks ago, is going to have a very positive impact on both alleviating the stigma and um, helping with returns of the survivors. Conflict-related sexual violence has a number of harms, um, short and long-term consequences, medically, psychologically, and socially. Uh, and to address these harms, survivors must be provided with holistic and survivor-centric uh, response, which includes uh, medical, psychological, social, legal, and economic services, as well as reparations. Currently, the situation in Talafar shows us that uh, survivors have access to none of these. Medically, uh, Talafar has a general hospital uh, that also employs an OBGYN. Um, it does have, however, insufficient staff, uh, medicine, and equipment. Uh, no psychiatrists are available. There's one psychologist and some social workers that are employed by IOM. Uh, none of the survivors that I spoke to had received specialized care, and the manager of the hospital mentioned that they didn't receive any survivors because of the stigma. 
Um, the OBGYN um, similarly mentioned that no survivor would come to the hospital out of fear of being singled out, and at most they would seek treatment at private clinics, which of course impedes accessibility since many survivors don't have the finances to uh, resort to private clinics. Uh, interviews also uncover that there's general uh, lack of awareness on what MHPSS entails, mental health and psychosocial support. At the same time, there's also a stigma against receiving mental health support out of fear of being labeled crazy. Uh, the situation of abortion laws is quite problematic, and it has been uh, a, a, a great cause of risk for survivors returning from captivity in Iraq. Iraqi laws penalize both the person receiving the abortion and the abortion provider. But of course, we know that a number of survivors have uh, obtained uh, abortions unsafe and illegal, but still. Um, at the same time, during these interactions with abortion providers, there are reports of stigmatizing language, uh, which further re-traumatizes survivors and, and, and further uh, impedes their access because they don't feel comfortable sharing their experiences with strangers. One of the issues that, again, um, might have an impact, might have a chilling effect on survivors from seeking treatment is that uh, Iraq has mandatory reporting of crimes. So um, the if the doctor comes across a certain crime, uh, he or she has to report it. Uh, and this might uh, impede, um, this might impact survivors' um, they may not feel comfortable since they don't. They may not want to file a criminal complaint, um, even though the Iraqi Ministry of Health's clinical management of rape guidelines do provide that receiving medical treatment shall not be conditional upon uh, filing a criminal complaint. There's a general lack of awareness on this. Uh, finally, there are two provisions in Iraqi law that, um, again, are, are risky for survivors. One indicating that punishment of a wife by uh, her husband shall not constitute a crime, and the second stating that. Um, honorable motives in committing a crime shall be a mitigating circumstance. Now, these are two provisions that Iraqi feminists have been advocating against for years, uh, and as well as for a new domestic violence bill, as Dr. Al-Bayati mentioned. And just this past week, uh, Iraqi President Barham Saleh announced that there will be a new domestic violence bill, uh, which we're hoping will be passed soon. Survivors have to, must have unimpeded access to medical and psychological uh, treatment at a fully functional hospital, offered um, a safe abortion um, and, and should be counseled, provided with follow-ups, if necessary, referred to further medical health uh, professionals. This is an emergency situation. Uh, there can be a number of different consequences that haven't been addressed until now, and it has already been quite a while since some of the survivors have returned. Uh, so this is one of the first steps that needs to be tackled. There is, of course, the point that even if these survivors were there, um, survivors would, even if the services were there, survivors wouldn't be able to access them um, because of the stigma. Well, this is no excuse to not provide these services because, to the contrary, the lack of services is also perpetuating stigma, and state institutions are also not acknowledging that survivors are there. Uh, at the same time, there has to be uh, community-based interventions, community-based programs that allow safe space uh, for discussion on the dangers of stigma um, that would support reintegration uh, of survivors. Legally, uh, Iraq isn't party to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, and it hasn't codified the international crimes. So uh, currently, um, all of these um, crimes are being tried under the anti-terrorism law, which is criticized for being vague. Uh, also, these this law doesn't provide uh, any provisions on sexual violence, so we have to resort to the Iraqi Penal Code, which does codify rape. However, the definitions are outdated and gendered. 
Uh, at the same time, it provides that loss of virginity shall be uh, a mitigating circumstance, uh, which provides for virginity testing, uh, a, a procedure that is medically unreliable, unnecessary, and severely traumatizing. Um, it also provides impunity for the perpetrator if he marries the victim. Uh, and this is also quite problematic given, of course, it's discriminatory, but at the same time, there are, the, the forced marriages were quite prevalent in the Daesh conflict, and we don't know how Iraqi courts will legally treat these marriages. Finally, there's a three-month statutory limitation to bring forward the claims, which is um, quite short, and considering the level of stigma and having spent years in captivity, it's unlikely that survivors will be able to bring forward these claims within that uh, period. At the same time, even if they could, Iraqi courts just don't have the capacity to handle um, these cases, and that's quite understandable since they weren't built to handle a conflict of this magnitude. We're talking about thousands of cases. Um, so there also has to be um, some capacity building to ensure that um, the courts are able to deal with the magnitude of this conflict. Talafar does have a courthouse and three judges, one of which is responsible for um, investigating rape claims, and then they're sent to Mosul for trials. Uh, none of the survivors had filed criminal complaints. They didn't see any point uh, in doing that. Um, and at the same time, the judge did mention that um, the stigma might be one of the reasons why survivors are reluctant to come forward. The United Nations investigative team started its work, uh, and they're expected to collect evidence on Daesh crimes in Iraq that might amount to international crimes. This also includes um, crimes against the Shia Turkmen, of course, and we're hoping that this will be uncovered. However, you, the, the UN investigative team, it's called UNITAD, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an investigative body. It's, it doesn't have a prosecution mandate, so it will hand over the evidence primarily to Iraqi courts, who, are, who will then be responsible for prosecuting these crimes. And then we go back to the problems uh, surrounding the uh, insufficient legal framework, the capacity building issues, and also the lack of um, any protective measures that would ensure survivors' safety and well-being during prosecutions. Uh, economically, survivors need economic support for in, for both essential needs, considering that uh, many of them are not able to work, they have no means to support themselves, as well as uh, programs that are directed at their economic empowerment, since uh, many times they're financially dependent on distant family members who are sometimes the ones who are perpetuating the stigma. Uh, the Ministry of Labor and Social Affairs has a social welfare program under which certain categories are eligible for payment. There's no category for survivors, even though there was a special category created for Yazidi survivors, thanks to um, prominent Yazidi NGO Yazda uh, in 2015. And the, this program continued for a while, was later discontinued, but never uh, grew to include other uh, groups who were um, subjected to these crimes. At the same time, there's recently been a new one-off payment uh, to Yazidi survivors. Uh, and again, this was only confined to Yazidi survivors where other uh, minority groups or other groups who have been subjected to sexual violence haven't uh, received uh, this money. Um, just to look at all of these services, the of course, the, the primary concern is even if there is a, a, a way to provide these services to survivors, survivors will not be comfortable resorting to them because they, they're afraid of being singled out and exposed, which is why all of these services have to be integrated into wider services and not directly target survivors, but be inclusive of them. Uh, and in, in line with Do No Harm, um, this has, it has to be made sure that none of the survivors are exposed as survivors while they reach out uh, to benefit from these services. So there also has to be community outreach activities that inform survivors on the availability of the services 
as well as confidentiality measures that would ensure no one um, would know that they're a survivor. And all of these, again, have to be designed, implemented, and evaluated based on the input of the survivors and the community. A one-size-fits-all approach is surely not, it's surely going to fail. Uh, and there, there are certain specifics of Talafar, of the Shia Turkmen community, that has to be taken into consideration while these services are being designed. Now, survivors have a right to reparation in addition to all of the services that we just mentioned. And this is not the same thing as uh, services, since survivors have a right to these as citizens of the Iraqi state, while they have a right to reparation because they're victims of, um, of serious violations of international law. Uh, this also requires the state to recognize individuals and collectives as victims, as well as state uh, liability for failing to protect uh, from these violations to occur. And when asked about their demands for uh, from a reparation program, Shia Turkmen survivors prioritize basic services, which is not surprising considering the level of poverty, uh, and especially they emphasize housing uh, because of the housing crisis in Talafar. Um, again, survivors have a right to housing and shelter and basic services because they are um, citizens of the state, not because they are victims. At the same time, um, it, it is possible to include some of these measures in an urgent interim reparations program, given that they're immediate needs, but reparations must look beyond these and also into the long-term uh, needs of survivors. There's also a demand for compensation, although survivors made it very clear that this wouldn't be justice. Um, this highlights the necessity for um, symbolic reparations in addition to uh, material reparations. Otherwise, survivors might perceive this as blood money and, and refuse to take it, as we've seen uh, in, in other contexts. Also, survivors mentioned very importantly that even if they were given the money, they wouldn't be allowed to be in control of it, that the family patriarch or some other relative would uh, take control of it. Uh, this also has to be taken into consideration to make sure that there are necessary measures um, for, uh, that allow survivors to be in control of their finances. Uh, of course, services are crucial in reparation programs designed for conflict-related sexual violence. This includes medical and psychological as well as social programs. Uh, in particular for the stigma, there has to be community-oriented programs that would inform the community on the dangers of the stigma and how to uh, reintegrate the survivors. <coughs> Collective reparations are particularly useful in a context such as this where stigma is very high, since it would allow providing benefits without individually um, naming people, such as a collective apology or a memorial. Uh, and finally, these survivors are not just direct victims of sexual violence, but also indirect victims of uh, kidnappings, of, uh, of disappearances, of killings. As Dr. Albayati mentioned, many of them have lost their entire families, and they also have a right to reparation as indirect victims of these violations. And they do demand that those in captivity be rescued, as well as mass graves exhumed and the remains returned to them for proper burial. In terms of recommendations, um, as Dr. Albayati mentioned, there is a reparations bill before the parliament right now, uh, but it only includes Yazidi survivors, so that has to be expanded to include all survivors, regardless of, of gender identity, um, ethnicity, sect, religion, or perpetrator who committed the crime. Uh, secondly, the bill explicitly, uh, it doesn't explicitly recognize conflict-related sexual violence crimes. It just mentions abduction and enslavement. It has to uh, explicitly list these crimes because without recognizing the, the, the violation, it's impossible to address the harm that would arise from such violation. Uh, importantly, 
this draft was um, was put together without sufficient consult consultations with the survivors and the communities. It's not too late. Like Dr. Albayati mentioned, it hasn't been voted on yet. There's still two more readings before it's being uh, put to vote. And there has to be proper consultation uh, with the survivors before this bill is voted on. Uh, finally, and I think very, most importantly, perhaps, there has to be guarantees of non-repetition. Survivors aren't going to believe that any of these efforts are genuine um, if they see that there is nothing that would prevent these violations from happening again. So there has to be measures included in this bill or in any other reparation effort that would ensure um, that these violations will not occur again. I'll just pass on these, and if there are any questions about the rest, we can get back to sure. that. Sure. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank okay, you. thank you to both our presenters. And I think you've touched on uh, not just the legal issues, but also a whole um, raft of uh, ethical and religious questions as well that I'm sure the um, audience would like to get into. Um, I'm going to ask you maybe uh, one question each before we start the general round of questions. So um, uh, to Dr. Bayati, um, you mentioned the role uh, of the importance uh, of religious authorities in um, playing a role to uh, reduce stigma by encouraging support um, for uh, the survivors or, or victims of um, conflict-related sexual violence. And I know that you mentioned specifically the recent declaration by um, Ayatollah Mohammed uh, Said al-Qin. I wondered how that is reflected uh, lower down by more local religious authorities and figures, and indeed political figures at a local and provincial level, whether they are also addressing stigma in, in any way. Um, and then also, since I know that you are um, that you run the Turkmen Rescue Foundation, perhaps you could just say a few words about how that ties in with your role on the Iraqi High Commission um, for Human Rights. Um, and then uh, just to uh, Goulet, yes, so ethics. Yeah, so that's something that I know that um, you have thought about and you, you touch on a lot in your report. But um, <coughs> so again, it comes down to addressing stigma um, and um, how to what is the best way of approaching such a sensitive topic, which is sensitive in every society, but of course there are special um, sensitivities related to um, Shia Turkmen. So, yeah, if you'd like to say a few words on those before we open it up. Yes, thank you again. Uh, regarding TRF, Turkmen Rescue Foundation is a volunteer-based organization or civil society. Uh, it is uh, started to work at uh, 2011 practically, but uh, legally uh, we have been registered in the Iraqi government at 2015. We focused in, in our work on uh, documentation first because uh, most of the atrocities happened against Turkmen community actually uh, was forgotten and missed. And in Iraq, um, every four or five years there is a new crime. So uh, the government and international crime are in general busy with the new crime. So no one will remember the old one. So there was a need, a necessity for documentation. We did this and we have in our um, website um, more than uh, six reports about different types of documentation about human rights violation. Uh, of course, most, most of them related to terrorism-based violence. Uh, we focused, as I uh, mentioned, on documentation, on advocacy, 
through uh, cooperation or coordination with different institutions in Iraq and outside of Iraq, uh, attending some of the events, uh, uh, whether related to UN or other institutions. And we focused actually on this topic a lot. Uh, there was a sort of a source of lobbying also with different national and international. Um, so this was actually um, the main role of TRF. And now I think we are starting to, to work with different uh, international organizations like IOM about uh, local rehabilitation for the victims by small projects and grants. Uh, regarding uh, religious fatwa, as I mentioned, uh, we think uh, it is very important, uh, first of all, because we are dealing with a very sensitive uh, issue related to social stigma. We have a victim, uh, but there is um, uh, a struggle between reaching this victim to the uh, institution. Uh, um, um, there is a difficulty for this victim even to ask or call for their rights. Uh, so we think that uh, there is a responsibility from the community to uh, behave in a different way with them. Responsibility also for the government to deal with them. So I think uh, the fatwa was very important. And regarding the delay of fatwa, of course, it is related to many complex. Marjaya um, and Najaf, it is just like an institution. And it depends, of course, on different uh, resources, religious resources. So they need an evidence, <clears throat> and they need to be sure that the evidence is true or false. Then after that, they need to um, also to uh, be sure that the fatwa will be uh, effective for the people in general or for the victims. So actually, uh, although we, we, we have some general fatwa about uh, supporting victims of different terrorism, but we focused on this topic because topic we because we know even it will be. Uh, uh, some guidance for the Iraqi institution to focus on supporting them. Uh, and we are waiting from the parliament to uh, amend the legislation to be, as I mentioned, practical and universal. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think we also have to talk about why, why conducting this research is even ethical uh, in the first place, because we know that there is a certain hype around sexual violence, particularly in Iraq and particularly for um, Yazidi women and girls. And they do have research fatigue by now. Uh, Shia Turkmen survivors, as Dr. Al-Bayati was mentioning, they haven't been um, written about, they haven't been the focus at all. Uh, this doesn't justify the decision to do research on this issue, uh, especially since you know, there are high levels of stigma and there is a, you know, there's a general rhetoric around breaking the silence, but it's not my decision to um, break the silence. Uh, but I was, I, I pretty much spoke to different members from the Shia Turkmen community and um, tried to understand what type of research would be most useful uh, in this context. And there were many members of the community who were very supportive of the survivors, um, many who were vocal. I wouldn't say necessarily that there was a silence. I think pretty much uh, after a couple of years, everyone was aware that this was an issue, that these violations did happen. But there was general lack of knowledge on um, the extent, the consequences, and perhaps the demands of the survivors themselves that hadn't been uh, looked at. Uh, and it was it was actually interesting to be there because, I mean, Talafar is a, 
um, you know, especially following the U.S. occupation, it had such a violent um, period and, and it, it was it, it faced so much violence. And they do have a general distrust towards Western researchers. But uh, I'm Turkish myself. So there was an interesting dynamic there. Um, you know, even the uh, interviews were held in Turkmen to Turkish um, interpretation. Uh, this did ease my access, and um, I think also thanks to being affiliated with TRF and Dr. Albayati. Um, however, there were, of course, certain um, sort of differences between us. You know, we're separated by class, by citizenship, by the the inherent power imbalance of the interview process. I did my best to reflect on these and to um, discuss my position as a as a transnational feminist researcher and. and try to convey why I wanted to do this research. Uh, and I hope that at the end of the day, I managed to do what the survivors asked, which was to stand in solidarity with them um, so that they can find themselves. And this was an exact quote from the research that I found very uh, touching. But still, I think we, and especially you know everyone who's working on this issue, including myself, we need to also reflect on what we're serving while we focus specifically on sexual violence and, and not on other violations. And there's an excellent uh, article by Sarah Meager on fetishization of sexual violence and international security. And uh, I must say that I still, um, I'm still conflicted as to where I'm standing with that. Thanks. Okay, well, we have about 40 minutes for questions. Um, so I might take a few questions at a time. If you uh, could keep your questions um, concise and um, direct. Set, tell me who you're directing them to, and just ask one question, please, so we can get around as many people as possible. Um, so, if you'd like to raise your hand, if you have any. Okay. Um, okay. In fact, we'll take. And then the lady. Um, thanks, Gule, for your amazing research. Um, my question is about the approaches um, that have been taken towards trying to overcome stigma, and if you've seen any approaches that were really impressive, um, particularly any creative approaches. Um, yeah. And can you just speak up for the recording? I'm not sure if the microphone's working, so. Yeah, I think that was okay. Yeah. Um, yes, thank you both so much. Um, it's wonderful to see how a partnership can facilitate greater understanding between both of you. Um, Gilay, this is directed more towards yourself. Um, you touched upon the a moment um, where you said it was a, maybe an ideological um, schism that meant, um, in particular, um, Yazidis. There was a difference between the Yazidis and the Turkmen. I wondered if you could just elaborate on that, whether it had like a religious or a cultural basis. I know in you you touch upon kind of the apostate status, um, but if you could just um, yeah just delve a little bit more into your findings on that. Thank you. Okay, thanks. So I think we have one that Ivory you could address um, from Ali about um, displaced Turkmen um, in Kavala, and then I think the other two were both for you, Gulay. Yes, <coughs> thank you. Uh, when displacement happened, of course, I mentioned that more than 100,000 of Turkmen uh, families displaced, first of all, to the uh, nearby Sinjar. At that time, Sinjar was safe. Then after I've been attacked, or um, there was uh, a lot of attempts from the uh, some of the politicians and, of course, from Marja'i and Najaf to facilitate uh, their 
coming or attendance to southern provinces because there is some uh, shared uh, sect between uh, Shia in south of Iraq and uh, Turkmen Shia. So most of them actually moved to south of Iraq, including Baghdad, Karbala, and Najaf, and mainly between Karbala and Najaf. And now maybe 80% or more turned back, uh, but there is still some uh, feminists there. Uh, and I think there is an, uh, to be honest with you, if I am from Tilafar, I will not return back. Because Tilafar um, exposed to such terrorism maybe for three times. And even displacement for three times. But the most hard one was the last one. Uh, and especially for those families who have survivors now, of course, social stigma is an added reason. Uh, now, yes, it is safe. There is uh, some local um, participant in different military units. They are protecting and defending. But the area is a, a strategic area. There is a lot of actually uh, some dispute between um, KRG and central government, some different. For example, if you are talking about Sinjar, Sinjar, although there is, uh, uh, we saw a lot of international interest in supporting Yazidi people, but the strange thing, till now, most of the Yazidi not returned back. Why? Because there is more than five uh, military groups in this city, uh, and I can say that some of them is not under control of federal government. So, of course, still this region is a risky for the families. So, we we need to give a guarantee for them that this, this, these crimes will not be repeated again. Yeah, um, yeah in terms of uh, overcoming uh, stigma, uh, I think an interesting example is the case of the Yazidis, uh, who, um, right after the genocide, the religious leader, uh, the spiritual leader of the Yazidis, Baba Sheikh, uh, issued a religious declaration and said that all Yazidis um, who were kidnapped remain pure Yazidis no matter what. Uh, and this also led to um, a symbolic procedure, a ceremony called the rebaptism ceremony, Morkudam, um, which from conversations with survivors, they've um, they've described it as something magical where uh, they would they feel as if they get into a water and when they emerge, they feel clean. This is uh, what one of the survivors had mentioned, uh, which includes going to Lalish, the uh, the holy place of the Yazidis, and uh, going through that baptism process that they uh, originally went through when they were children. Uh, and I thought that, um, you know, this is a, a great example of how um, the Yazidis um, resisted the genocide as well. And, and this was a, um, a way that stigma was also overcome. Um, of course, it's not gone altogether, you know, understandably so, but... Um, that's why I, I thought that having this religious declaration by um, Grand Ayatollah al-Hakim can also have a great impact since we've seen with other communities uh, how this can uh, make a difference. But of course, this isn't the only way. Um, I think also having just creating safe spaces uh, that would allow to talk about the dangers of stigma and the possible impacts of it um, could also have a, a, a great uh, impact. Um, as for the religious uh, schism and uh, IS doctrine, I, I just want to point out that I didn't document violations as part of this research. Um, I don't think that any of the survivors would particularly gain anything from me documenting the violations. So mine was more forward-looking approach. I wanted to find out what they want. Um, so I didn't document um, the 
you know, anything that could show me what the intent of Daesh was when uh, they committed certain violations. But based on what we read from um, propaganda magazines of uh, ISIS, we see that they put the Shia Muslims in a category of uh, apostates, while, for example, the Yazidi are categorized only as um, as polytheists. So they don't. They, there is a um, some disagreements within the religious doctrine within the fiqh, the um, the, the jurists, whether apostate women can be enslaved or not. Uh, and this is, you know, it's being written about in their propaganda magazine. So based on that, um, we do believe that there might be a chance that this impacted their decision not to use conflict-related sexual violence as systematically and frequently as they did with the Yazidi. Um, any more questions? Okay. Uh, quite a few hands. Okay, so um, maybe we'll take just the three at the table at the moment. So you and who was everyone on that side? Yes, please. Um, hi, uh, thank you again. Um, I'm not sure exactly to which one of you I should direct my question, um, so maybe whoever can answer it the best. Um, I just want to ask about if there's been any also consideration of just the role that young people play in uh, combating this and like, the role they can and do play in changing attitudes towards sexual violence um, and the stigma and as well as the talents that they face, not necessarily just the survivors but also just young people in the communities and what uh, approaches are taken towards them. Thank you ever so much for your research. Um, coming back to the kind of idea of stigma, um, sexual violence against men is, receives even greater stigmatization. Um, and in numerous conflicts around the world, it's emerging that's been, you know, such as in DRC, there's been really great extents of sexual violence against men. Um, I was wondering if there's any hints of that in this context. <coughs> Hi, and I'm Michael. I'm not quite sure who to direct my question to, um, but I wanted to ask, having sort of seen what's going on in Baghdad and the sort of fragile political situation, I wondered um, how can the funding, the sharing of best practice, uh, how can the federal government still do that whilst under the pressure it's under? Okay, well, it looks like uh, it's open to both of you. So we had a question on the role of young people um, in addressing a stigma of conflict-related sexual violence, um, uh, where we've looked at um, men uh, victims as, as well, um, and the uh, the strains on the federal government in uh, dealing with legislation reparations. So I think whichever. Like yeah, I always start with the young people. Yeah, this is an important question because I think, uh, according to the uh, official data, young people in Iraq are representing more than 60%. And uh, in general, to be honest with you, always they are marginalized from all uh, steps in Iraq. And this is uh, unfortunate, of course. Um, I think it's very important. First of all, because I told you that it is they, they are representing high percentage of the community. Second, I think because of um, raised awareness through social media and internet, uh, I think they are more tolerant about that. And actually, um, an example of TRF is actually young based or youth based organization, 
we worked for uh, we started as i told at uh, 2011 and we worked over these years free without paying for anyone i am nourish doctor and i am i was responsible for my payment my travel but most of the staff worked with me freely for one reason because they want to help their people so i think it's very important even in work in in, in advocating inside of iraq uh, young people had good role role in that especially in Tarafal. but i think we need to work with them more thank you regarding the situation sorry in iraq of course there is now ongoing actually some bad situation because of the protest and some uh, sabotage and uh, violence happened actually uh, and we actually stated in the media as a human rights commission uh, a lot of statement and data about that uh, and we are waiting to the investigation from the Iraqi government about that uh, I think uh, again focusing on the survivors is very important um, focusing in general uh, on transitional justice which is um, first of all uh, including accountability and when we are talking about accountability of course we need to um, have a rule for such survivors and this accountability and justice second of course separation and we think that separation is all not only giving money because it will be blood money we think that we need to empower them like example of Nadia Murad we need to re-engage them in the community to have a real rule and power inside their community. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, CRSV against men and boys, absolutely even greater stigma, severely understudied, and, you know, many of us pretend as if that's not even a reality, uh, unfortunately so. Um, to be completely honest with you, in the past two years that I've been working on the Daesh conflict, I haven't heard of a single confirmed report on CRSV against men and boys. This doesn't mean that it hasn't been committed. I'm pretty sure that it has been, especially against younger boys. Uh, but because of the stigma, it's been um, very, very difficult to report on this. Um, and yeah, I think this is a, a gap in both um, the humanitarian field as well as academia that we haven't been engaged in this uh in the um, at least the Daesh conflict in Iraq, I know that there has been some work on this in Syria, uh, but not in Iraq. Um, okay, yes, some questions. Um, okay, I saw somebody had their hand up over there before. Okay, so uh, the two ladies here. Is there anyone else? Okay, so just you two. Yeah, uh, maybe wait for the microphone. Uh, so I had um, two questions, but I will ask one first, and then we'll see if we have time for the second one. I was wondering, um, so for, if you could elaborate a little bit on, I think some, one of you mentioned children born out of rape. Um, and I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on that with regards to um, the legal implication, especially on children born out of rape. Uh, in this case, uh, if it's different from any other community that has suffered, for survivors that have suffered um, sexual violence. Um, and um, if there is anything with regard to advocacy in the pipeline to with the government to change that. Um, because of course of the lack of children born out of rape to have any access to basic services, legal identity, etc., etc. Hi, 
Thank you so much for this. This has been very informative. Um, my question is about the law. I, both of you in your, in your own presentations, you emphasized the law and how it's important to amend it to make sure it's inclusive. Um, obviously, that is really important and uh, passing it through Parliament is important. But I was wondering, what is the actual rule of law um, in, on the ground and how effective that would be uh, if passed? Um, on, on to the survivors and the community and women. Thank you. I think we can take your second question if you'd like. Yeah. Okay, so my second question is, uh, is about the um, still missing survivors. Um, so basically you said that about in Telafar, basically, if I'm not wrong, about 44 um, came back and 20, 22 of those are women, right? Um, so there is a huge number that is still missing. Uh, so I wanted to ask about um, if there were any um, documentation on whereabouts. Uh, I was quickly going through the research and you mentioned that they might be in some other countries or um, if there are any understanding of who is detaining them at the moment and um, for example if they are if they have been freed but they are not coming back from for for example for stigma or if they are still in captivity. What's happening with that? Okay, again, I think both of you could. Yeah. Um, so the children born of rape issue has been, um, it's been a problem in particular with the uh, Yazidi community uh, because under Iraqi law, if uh, a child has a Muslim parent, uh, the child will just be um, given that Muslim parent's religion. So the child will be registered as uh, Muslim, uh, regardless of the other parent's identity. And uh, this was an issue with the uh, Yazidi community since um, Yazidis are not Muslim. Uh, and the child born of rape to uh, Yazidi survivors were being automatically registered uh, as Muslim as per Iraqi law. Uh, there has been, as Dr. Al-Bayati mentioned, there was uh, initially in the draft bill for uh, Yazidi survivors, there was a provision on this issue, it was unclear what that provision would do since it just mentioned that the, the issue would be solved according to the law, but the law is what's the problem here. So we weren't quite sure what this meant. Uh, but then we've been seeing from the Council of Ministers recommendations to this bill that they're suggesting they take out this provision altogether and defer the matter to uh, religious and community leaders of the Yazidis. Um, I don't know if Dr. Al-Bayati has anything else to add to that. Yep. Um... Uh, in general, according to the international organization documentation, I think it was for NRC, uh, they documented in general um, a number of kids in general who came through ISIS village or raping is around 40,000 in Iraq. I think that's 40,000 who 40, were born 000. under IS control. Yeah, I'm not talking about Yazidi yeah. and Turkmen case in general because we have from other committees also. Uh, but we, they are without documentation. Now the problem now Regarding um, those who are from uh, Muslim community, in general, there is no problem with law. They can get the documentation, but there is uh, some problem problems related to the tools. For example, uh, if any kid, uh, if you want to give any ID or for any kid, we want, first of all, documentation of the father and mother. Second, we need documentation for the marriage and all lost because if the father is terrorism terrorist, so this means that he's not present. And when the process is going to the security services or institution, of course they will be arrested or because there is some 
articles related to counterterrorism law, uh, which is dealing even with relative of the terrorist. So it is actually uh, security-related issues, not uh, legislation-related. Uh, we are trying to solve this with the parliament to include some uh, articles and uh, what we call it uh, uh, draft of children law in Iraq, which is still also not issued. Uh, regarding the Yazidi case, as Gulay mentioned, it is related to the father because the father is Muslim. So, uh, if he is present, of course, if he is absent, this is another problem. Who will be the father? So, I think we need to add a new entity in the in the law to deal with that. I think there was a question about uh, impact of law on the ground. Yeah. Uh, to be honest with you, practically, this law will help only uh, those survivors to get salary. I, I don't believe that, at least for, for the next few years, there will be any, any process about what we are talking. If, if uh, we, we will try to also support them in empowering regarding giving them certain percentage in employment or education, but I, I don't believe that we will have a real center, specialized center in Iraq, although there is high number uh, specialized for giving care and medically and psychological and other things. Uh, at least we will succeed to empower them financially and maybe from other aspects. Yeah, I think that's a, a great question about implementation. And previous experiences of reparation programs, administrative reparation programs in Iraq, um, show us how this process can take very, very long time. It can have very high evidentiary standards, so it might be practically impossible for people to claim reparations under a program like this. And this has been the experience pretty much for uh, law number 20 uh, that Dr. Albayati mentioned in, in his presentation. So th this is quite important to make sure that implementation goes forward smoothly. But considering it might take years until these benefits are distributed under the new law, uh, I think we also have to push for urgent interim reparations in the meantime to address the most immediate needs of the survivors since, you know, under law number 20, it takes a few years for, um, you know, between the time of when a claim is made and the benefit is collected. And uh, it's just going to be too late at the time. And then uh, the, yeah, about the, the people who are still missing. Yeah, um, I mean, we one of the security actors that I spoke to mentioned they rescued one girl from Turkey and that they uh, they suspect that many of them are uh, in neighboring countries. Um, my discussions with locals also um, uncovered that a number of their family members are still in Turkey who were forcefully married to Sunni Turkish IS fighters. I mean, Sunni Turkish IS fighters have played an incredible role in the attacks against Talafar and the attacks against the Shia Turkmen. Um, and... There has been many women and girls who were kidnapped and forcefully married to them. Uh, I think that some of them have um, are, are maybe not returning because of the stigma. Uh, one of the survivors of captivity, but not sexual violence, I discussed to mentioned that her sister has been uh, forced married and now she has three kids, so she doesn't want to leave the children. And so she's staying there. So there are a number of factors. But I think, again, um, we need to remember that, unfortunately, killings were very widespread in this genocide. So there is a chance that some of them are killed. But we're talking about 425, approximately, uh, women and girls missing. So that is a huge number. Even if they have been killed, their remains must be located and, and, and exhumed and, and given back to their families for proper burials, dignified burials. So, um, yeah, I mean, just that they're missing and we don't know where they are, that's, that's not an excuse at all. Okay, we have a 
of time for one final round of questions if we have any. Um, otherwise, I think it's a good... Anyone else? Yeah, okay, Michael and... Yep, okay, we've got two on the table. Okay, I think... <laughs> There's a third one there. Oh, sorry, did I miss someone? Okay. Can you see me? Okay, so um, Michael and you and over there. Um, Michael Mason, um, Middle East Centre here, LSE. Uh, the question was, um, this extraordinary um, report, um, testament to some um, really, really sort of uh, impressive research, was about the UNITAD, this UN investigative team, and the extent to which this report, for example, might feed into their work, and perhaps also uh, your assessment about the extent to which UNITAD itself is sufficient in its uh, efforts, research efforts, to, to um, document uh, CISV violence, including, I presume, it's going through the same stages of, of sensitivity and ethical review about methodology, and perhaps whether you've had any conversations with them about ways in which their work can be made more uh, uh, effective. Thank you. Thank you both. So you both mentioned local laws, local regulations, local powers. I was wondering whether you have any thoughts on whether more international powers, more international laws have either a greater role to play in, in response and reparations here, or perhaps whether anything can be changed, any different approaches that can be taken in future events, instances like this, as I've no doubt there unfortunately will be. But what can what can international powers and laws learn from this essentially? There was a question there. <laughs> Thank you so much for highlighting this important issue, which is I mean the focus was only on Yazidi survivors and um, um, I just want to mention maybe two points. The role uh, of arts in healing. We didn't hear anything, I mean, from the international community when the design project to be implemented in Iraq, they designed from Western perspective. And also the implementation of those projects, uh, you know, I worked as a voluntary since the fall of, uh, of Mosul till the liberation with all communities. I, I call them Iraqis not Yazidis or Turkmenes, etc. So, um, uh, the, um, I mean, the international NGOs, they are either sitting in Arbil, in safe place, and they are depending on very, you know, um, I mean, not a professional Iraqi NGOs, because we have now thousands of Iraqi NGOs. They are registered as NGOs uh, by the government, but at the same time, they don't have the expertise, I mean, uh, this is one thing, and um, uh, the funders at the end, they just, you know, they are caring about the report. I mean, the feedback, the report after finishing the implementation of those uh, of those projects, and this is a big issue. I mean, this is one thing. The other uh, things um, uh, you talked about the fatwa, the religious fatwa, which is 
um, if Dr. Bayati can elaborate on this, because uh, this is from Marja'iyah you mentioned. Al-Hakim, one of the Marja, also Al-Hakim, they are for Marja, I mean, the Shia Marja. So, thank you. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, about UNITAD's work, um, I, I mean, I know Dr. Al-Bayati um, has been working on this issue. I would say perhaps that um, I'm, I, I know that UNITAD is uh, already aware of this issue and they have mentioned that they're going to start documenting crimes that took place in Mosul between 2014 and 2016, including sexual violence crimes. And this is very likely it's going to uncover some of the crimes committed against the Shia Turkmen. Um, as I mentioned, I think my uh, I, I'm concerned about um, the, the prosecution eventually because there are certain problems. Um, you know, yes, they will be handed over primarily to Iraq. Well, Iraq still has the death penalty, uh, and it still is prosecuting all of these crimes under this anti-terrorism law, where many uh, due process violations are being reported. Um, again, UNITAD is mentioning that it's going to. Uh, is having consultations with the government of Iraq to um, codify international crimes, to build capacity. Uh, I'm hoping that this, this will take place and um, these, uh, these accountability processes are going to be handled uh, in accordance with due process as well as by making sure that survivors are given the opportunity to participate uh, if they wish so. Yeah. yeah, regarding UNITAD, as you know, they are mainly, according to their mandate, they are working to investigate on the um, prison documentation. They are not documenting. If there is any documentation, they are investigating on that. And when they um, sent their letter, I think it was maybe before uh, two months, to Security Council, I noticed that they focused on three topics. First of all, Sinjar. Second, um, about Mosul in general. Uh, third topic was about Spiker, Masigrev, and, and uh, Salahuddin. There was nothing about Turkmen, and at that time, we prepared a letter to the Turkmenistan Foundation, and I met with the uh, head of national team and UNITAD, and actually I blamed them that uh, they are not interested to work on Turkmen case, although it is mentioned uh, in many uh, international activity and it is approved now it is not like before four years so we have uh, victims now and I focused on a point that why you are going to spend a lot of money to open mass graves and get evidence for genocide and you are not listening to the survivors and I think after that uh, after two weeks maybe they had a visit to Tel uh, and they focused actually at that time I'm not sure whether they met because they are, of course, working in a very secret environment. Uh, but I think they focused on survivors and uh, a big mass grave and interlaffer also. Uh, but at the end, as Gulay said, uh, said that they are only investigating and the main struggle, how they uh, will send or refer such investigation to, the, to which court. If we are talking about Iraqi court, we have... Uh, no any single article in the Iraqi law about international crimes. We are dealing with Daesh members only and by their uh, affiliation to terrorism. Uh, only affiliation to terrorism will be only to uh, prosecute them. So we, we need actually, uh, and I think this uh, team was some sort of alternate for Iraq, Iraqi ratification for ICC. 
And I'm not sure uh, whether there will be special court in Iraq or not, but I heard that there is some international efforts to uh, create a special court for only foreigner ISIS members, not Iraqi ISIS members. And this is another sort of discrimination, of course, because uh, in Iraq, as you know, there is death penalty. And in general, uh, there is now, I'm not sure about the number, but uh, at the last few months, they brought hundreds of them, uh, a certain agreement with, with European countries. But in general, they are not happy to for their members to be sent for death. And I think uh, this type of dealing, even with this big issue, which is related to, to big crimes considered as international crimes, is a sort of discrimination, even in, deal, in dealing with this. So either we must have one court in Iraq with international support, uh, with uh, work given to Iraqi judges, uh, or we will let the Iraqi court to do what they want, whether the for whether the member is Iraqi or non-Iraqi. Um, so about the international framework on uh, reparations, well, this is something that Iraq uh, has an obligation to provide reparations under its international law obligations, both um, implicitly under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and explicitly um, with the Convention Against Torture. So, and this isn't Iraq's first time doing this. You know, there was, of course, reparations for Kuwait, and then there's individual reparations under this law number 20. So it's something that it's Iraq is quite used to. Uh, I think especially with the most recent Women, Peace, and Security resolution that mentions specifically reparations for conflict-related sexual violence, there has been, um, you know, an incrementally increasing attention on reparations for CRSV. Uh, I think one point that um, we should also talk about is how CRSV isn't the only violation that uh, women and girls endure in this conflict, and there are certain there are several other gendered harms that are you know unique to women and girls. And this focus only on conflict-related sexual violence while designing reparation programs, I think, is going to fall short of addressing uh, all of their needs. And there has to be a, a more broader um, look at what type of harm survivors experience. Uh, and I think this only can be achieved by asking the survivors. And that's, again, I think something that is lacking in the process right now. But uh, we've also been hearing that there, there's going to be conferences where survivors are going to be invited. Um, so hopefully um, this is going to happen before this bill is passed. Um, about the international communities in action and, and the, um, the, the, the humanitarian aid field in, uh, in Iraq, um, and I, I did cite that in my paper. There's a great paper by Choman Hardy under uh, the Women, Peace and Security Center at, uh, at LSE. And she mentions many of the issues that you raised in terms of the um, uh, international donors and funders of uh, women's rights organizations uh, in Iraq. Uh, and I think some of the points that she makes, especially in terms of um, how donors are quite focused on short term interventions, and they're focused, like you said, on the, um, you know, the, the, the conclusive narrative report, but nothing is really discussed about how this is impacting long-term development goals or if it's actually, um, is it furthering self-reliance or is it making the community more dependent on this aid? So these are not issues that are being quite discussed. So, um, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you that um, there has to be better representation of the demands of the people themselves. Uh, and the interventions have to be designed, you know, in a conflict-sensitive matter and making sure that they're not um, making the communities dependent on this aid. Uh, 
Thank you very, very much. I think that's a good point to uh, wrap it up. We're right on time. It's uh, nearly half past seven. Um, if I can ask the audience, thank you so much for all of your insightful questions. Um, if you'd like to join me in thanking our two speakers for their uh, talks tonight. Thank you.